The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Amen, church. Remain standing with me this morning as we continue our reading through the 119th Psalm. This morning we're going to be reading through verses 145 to 152. This is the Word of God. With my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord. I will keep your statutes. I call to you, save me, that I may observe your testimonies. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night, that I may meditate on your promise. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love. O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. They draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law, but you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. And all God's people said, you may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father God, you owed us nothing. You owed us nothing but wrath and judgment and condemnation and death. And yet, Father, at great cost to yourself, the cost of your beloved and only begotten Son, Father God, you have extended so much mercy and grace and goodness into our lives. Father, you have not only forgiven us and welcomed us into your kingdom, but you have received us to yourself as sons. Father, we sit today as a people knowing that we have an inheritance in heaven. Knowing the vast gulf that exists between the wrath we should receive and the treasures that await us today. Father, it's with a sense of thanksgiving and gratitude and awe and wonder that we sit under your word this morning. Father God, we just want to see more of your face. We want to see more of this one who has ransomed and redeemed us. We want to see you. We want to know you. We want to be like you. So, Father, we pray that by the working of your Spirit, you would do now the thing that only you can do. Transform us by this side of your glory revealed to us in your word. We pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I ask you to go ahead and return to your feet, please. We continue reading this magnificent passage found in the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We're reading verses 3 through 14. I remind you that this is the inerrant, infallible, authoritative, sufficient word of God. We should receive it as such. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us and the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who are the first to hope in christ might be to the praise of his glory In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. All God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Again, Father, we ask you to do what only you can do. By the working of your spirit and the power of your word, have your way with us now. It's your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So in the world of preaching, there's a term called landing the plane. This phrase, it refers to a preacher's ability to close out his sermon, to just conclude his message in a way that brings the whole thing together. It allows the congregation to touch down nice and easy, having a firm grasp on everything that's just been said. Now, as you can imagine, it can be with great difficulty. It's a great challenge. There are many pastors that have incredible difficulty landing the plane. They get to the end of their sermon and they can't really figure out how to get to the point and wrap it all up. They can't find a place to land, so to speak, and so they just circle around grasping at words. Now again, this is a very common thing. Any of you who have ever done any kind of public speaking, you can probably relate. You know the rambling desperation that comes in those closing minutes of a given speech. But I'm happy to report to you that I do not have this particular issue. I have no problem whatsoever figuring out how to get this thing on the ground. Instead, I come in hot like this. Seemingly midway through a sermon, I go straight into a nosedive, full speed ahead and without warning. I just hope that everybody is buckled up, that they're holding on tight, and that nobody dies in the process. You might say that rather than circling the runway, I bring it home with a crash landing. Now, I assure you that this is not by design. Every week when I sit down to write my sermon, it includes a conclusion, a magnificent conclusion, a wonderful conclusion, a peaceful conclusion, a conclusion that would leave you people, that would cause you people to leave this place feeling utterly blessed. The problem is none of you ever get to hear the conclusions. Instead, what happens is I look down at my watch. I realize that I'm out of time. I shut my Bible mid-thought, and I bring the thing to a screeching halt with a closing prayer. Now, I want you to know that I'm aware of this, and I do not think, despite the fact that we laugh about it now, I don't think that it's clever, and I don't think that it's cute. I know that it's my responsibility to get better, but in all fairness, you people called a pastor who had only preached five and a half sermons in his entire life, so really this is your fault, isn't it? But in all honesty, I do, I do think that there is something to be gained from you people hearing me say that that I know this is an issue. I think there's something to be gained from you people hearing me acknowledge my own weakness as a 
preacher and as a pastor and knowing that I am prayerfully working on these. I do take this serious. But the reason that I bring it up this morning is because last week's landing was a remarkably rough one. You'll recall that we were considering together what it means for us to have been adopted by God as sons through Jesus Christ. We were paying particular attention to the clear biblical teaching that not everyone is a child of God. That because of the fall, that because of Adam's sin as the representative for all of humanity, the world now lies under the power of the evil one. And therefore that natural man, man as he is born into this world, man if he does nothing but continue on the current pattern of this world, not only is he not a child of God, he is in fact a child of the devil. That's the clear teaching of Christ. It's the teaching of Christ in John 1.12. It's the clear teaching of Christ in Ephesians 2.2. It's the clear teaching of Christ in John 8.44. And it's the implicit teaching of Christ here through the Apostle Paul in this morning's text. That entrance into the family of God is not granted to the whole of mankind. That sonship is not the default position of humanity. That every single person, every single person, whether they're 99 years old or still within their mother's womb, no matter their race, no matter their sex, no matter the level of suffering or disability they may have, that every single person has been made in the image of God. And that therefore, they're worthy of honor and dignity and respect and protection and care. But that it is only those who have been unified to Christ through repentant faith whom have been given the rights to be called sons of God. Therefore, every single person, every single person that ever lives, they belong to one of two families, you're either in Adam, a child of the devil by nature, or you are in Christ, a son of God by adoption. There's no other option. There's no other way. So last, last Sunday morning on the last Lord's Day, I just come to the conclusion of this thought when I looked down and I realized that we had about six minutes left before we needed to move together to the table. Now the wise thing would have been to just wrap up the sermon at that point, just to call you to a moment of self-reflection, call you to examine yourself called you to pray to God that he would, by his spirit, to your spirit, confirm that you are his, and then call you to come boldly to feast your soul upon Christ. But instead, I introduced you a question that 99% of you have never thought to ask. I introduced a question to you that requires some time even to think through what does this question mean before we can ever get to considering what the answer might be. The question was this, is being adopted by God as sons the same thing as being born again? Now, I knew that I messed up the minute the words left my mouth. I saw it on your face. Number one, I saw that inquisitive look on many of your faces. I don't know. I've never considered this thing before. And as I began to try and explain it and work through it, I realized I can't talk through everything that I have here in my manuscript. And so I've got to try and condense probably 20 minutes worth of thought into six minutes and hope that somehow you people can magically digest it. Again, I say I knew I'd messed up the minute I started. But I was in it then. And I'd already begun. So in accordance with my typical landing pattern, I went full speed ahead. Called you to buckle up tight. We went full speed ahead until the clock ran out. I pulled on the brake and the whole thing came to a screeching halt. So I've heard from a number of you just how confusing this thing really was. And for that, I truly am sorry. But I pray that you would allow me this morning to circle back and God willing to explain to you, number one, why I think this question matters and why it's worthy of being asked. And number two, try to come to a real answer, a biblical answer to that question. So, the reason that I asked the question, why do I think this question matters? I asked it because it seems to me that the Apostle Paul wants us to behold as full and robust a picture as possible of God's redeeming 
work. You got to remember the context here. Paul is so overwhelmed by all that he has seen in God. As he considers the endless spiritual blessings that God has bestowed upon his saints, he is so moved by this that he bursts forth into a word of praise right here in the beginning of his letter. That he then invites us to join him in considering all that God has done on our behalf. Now it seems to me that the reason that Paul is so diligent in laying out this picture is because he knows how myopic men can be. He understands how our minds can so often stop at ground level, just considering only our own experiences. And he knows that whenever we have such a small and restrictive view of God and his redemption and his endless spiritual blessings, that this can and will hinder our worship. And so, before moving on to anything else, the Apostle Paul stops right here. And he sweeps us up with him into heaven. He pulls back the curtain to heaven. He reveals to us the scope and the scale of all that God has done in saving us. He stretches back into eternity past and forward into eternity future, showing us how the Father and the Son and the Spirit work together in perfect unity, doing everything necessary not only to accomplish, but to apply redemption to you, his saints. Now, for your sake, I pray that you have not grown weary of this passage. We've got many months left in it, but I pray that it has not lost its luster. I pray that it has not become something that is rote or mundane or ordinary. I pray that you feel the magnitude of what Paul is revealing to us here in the beginning of this letter. This really is an unparalleled view of God's mercy and his grace. The very thing that will cause the true Christian to fall on his knees in wonder and praise. What Paul's aiming for here is doxology driven by doctrine. Theology fueling our worship, our head leading our heart. But again, I say that none of this comes naturally, even to the Christian. You see, to the baby Christian, as we first come to this new life, we don't recognize a whole lot beyond just that which is before us. We have such a limited view of everything that's just happened to us. And so from our perspective, it was all so very simple. Someone shared the gospel with us. We understood what they said. We believed what they said to be true, and therefore we put our trust upon it. Again, the whole thing seems very simple, very straightforward. Someone held Christ up before us, and we chose to follow him. It really doesn't seem any more complicated than that. Sure, there may have been some other things that went on behind the scenes, there may have been some hidden things, some, some mysterious things, but that's above our pay grade. We don't need to waste our time. We don't need to stretch our minds. We don't need to tie ourselves up in knots considering anything other than that which was right before us, that which we experienced and saw and knew in the moment. But oh, how I pray, church, that you see how much more there is than this. I pray that you of all people, as we've worked so diligently through this text, I pray how you see as we come now to, I look to the calendar. I think this is now our sixth month. We're beginning our sixth month in the letter to Ephesians. And I, I pray that you see all that God has done. Or at least all of what God has done that he has chosen to reveal to you. I pray that you would refuse to keep peeking at God through a little tiny knot hole in a fence when he is standing there willing to take you up into his arms. Put you upon his shoulder. Reveal more of himself to you than you ever imagined. So I pray that you have not settled. Not because settling not because restricting your understanding of redemption to just the level of your own experience will cause you to be lost. I trust that there's plenty of men in heaven today who left this earth with the weakest of theologies, understanding very little other than who Jesus is and what he has done, but having no concept of all that God must do to bring a man to salvation. But dear children, you, you people who have sat under this teaching, who have wrestled on your own, who have sat in small groups all throughout this church, I pray how you know that there is so much blessing there's so much joy. There's so much assurance. There's so much hope. There's so much of God's glorious grace to behold when we recognize the scope of what he has done. When we labor hard by the power of his spirit to study and pray and consider and worship in light of these deeper truths. 
to look with wonder. The Apostle Paul, he holds this diamond up before us and he just turns it before our eyes, drawing our attention to one magnificent aspect after another, showing us, look at this. And just as your eyes begin to settle upon that truth, as your heart feels like it's going to burst because you cannot imagine God loving you anymore, he turns it. And there's more. So I pray as you've continued to behold this thing, as he's, as he's drawn you into a deeper view, a deeper understanding, deeper waters, I pray that you have not grown weary. Yes, we're moving at a slow pace. We will eventually speed up. But for now, you must know that God wants you to see this. Otherwise, he would not have revealed it. And the reality is that we have, I feel like the Grinch sometimes. Wasn't it the Grinch? He had that tiny little heart, and then his heart would grow, and it would grow, and it would grow, and it would grow. That many of us, we've walked into this Christian life with such tiny hearts, with such a finite capacity to understand and to reconcile, to, to love God, to understand what he's done for us. And as we sit under his word, under the power of his spirit, as we see more of what he has done, our heart grows and it grows and it grows. And just when we think there's no more capacity, it grows some more. It feels to me as though that is what the Apostle Paul is doing. And so as we come in here and we sit under the teaching of his word, we wrestle with these truths and we worship in light of it. And then as you go to your quiet place, as you go and you study this word on your own, and you begin to see these biblical terms that we've mentioned in here, words that we at one time as a church may have avoided, but today we see them, words like predestined and chosen, and elected, and adopted, and justified, and redeemed. So many of you, you have come to recognize that there is much more to the saving work of God than just your own conversion. Now, conversion, that's just a fancy biblical word. It refers to the moment that a man turns. The moment that a man turns from himself, he turns from his sin, and he turns to Christ Jesus in faith. Conversion is a thing that we call men to do. It's this thing that we tell men, unless you are converted, you will not see the kingdom of God. You will never be saved. This is a clear teaching of Jesus. Matthew 18, 3, he says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, in the minds of most professing believers, that sums up redemption. It is all about their conversion. We made a decision to turn and trust in Jesus Christ. They give zero thought to anything which came before it. They give zero thought to anything that was happening at the same time as it. And even more troubling, they give no thought to what comes after that. All they know is I did that one thing, that one time, and that's enough. But as you study the scriptures, as you begin to really consider what God actually means by what he actually says, many of you have come to realize that absolutely your conversion is precious and real and totally necessary for salvation. And absolutely, we must go out and call men to repent and believe in Christ Jesus, trusting that by the power of the Spirit, some will. But that above and beyond and behind the moment of your conversion lies something so much deeper, something so much more vast, more all-encompassing than we could have ever imagined. In short, you've come to recognize just how little you had to do with your own salvation. Perhaps for the first time, you come to recognize what the Scripture means when it says that salvation is of the Lord. And so my concern, and I believe that this is the Apostle Paul's concern, my concern is that we think rightly, that we speak rightly, that we pray and worship rightly in light of what we now see in Scripture. Because it's very easy for these beautiful, rich, theological, redemptive terms to all just jumble together in our minds. Now we know that justification and adoption are not the same thing. We know these aren't just flip sides to the same coin. We know that God is talking about two aspects of his work in redemption, but we can't define how. We know they're not the same, but we don't really know how they're not the same, and we don't really know why it matters. 
We long to see the glorious truth, as much of the glorious truth of God's redemptive work in our lives as he would allow. And we know that there's great blessing, as, as Paul says, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which he has called us. But the problem is all the lines have just gone blurry. And so I believe that it's Paul's hope, and it's certainly my hope, that we'd see this with a bit more clarity. That was the purpose for me asking the question. That was the purpose for me bringing it up. I hope to bring things into better focus, to perhaps better define the edges for you, not only with regards to regeneration and adoption, but with every single portion of salvation. Because I know that many of you are working through these doctrines now on your own. And so I saw myself standing on the shore, so to speak, and giving your boat a little push as you headed out into deeper waters. And so, now I've planted the seed. And it seems to me that it would be pastoral malpractice to not circle back and clean up some of the mess that I've made. Now the reality is I probably shouldn't have asked this question until we got to the second chapter of Ephesians. That's where it fits. But I feel as though I want to front end. I want, I, want to, I want to front load everything as much as possible so your hearts are prepared so that you can do less having to figure out what these words mean and more just basking in the glory when we get there. So we're there. I've laid it on the table and I, I'm confident. I'm confident that God will bless us as we search for a more comprehensive answer than I was able to give you last week. And then God willing, on the next Lord's Day, we'll pick up some steam and move forward. So again, the question was this. Is being adopted by God as sons the same thing as being born again? Now, we all know that there's only one way to God. We all know that no one comes to the Father except by the Son. And so we know that the idea cannot be that there's two different ways to enter into God's family. We know that Jesus Christ is the only begotten, the only, the only eternal, the only Son of God by nature. Beyond those, this, we know that our sin and our guilt has disqualified is left us completely unfit for entrance into the family of God. And therefore, we know that our only hope is that God would receive us into his family on account of our union with Christ Jesus. And that this means that there are not then two groups, two types, two stratas of children in the family of God. There aren't as though there were some who were born into the children, born into the family of God. And then there are others who only come via adoption. So again, we come back to the question, does that then mean that God is just talking about the same thing using different terms? Adoption, being born again. Is this just a flip side of the same coin? Is this just two different phrases that point to the same reality? As I told you last week, the answer is no, not at all. Regeneration, that's just a fancy biblical word for being born again. Regeneration is the very beginning of God's saving grace at work within his saints. Now, the Apostle Paul has made very clear to us that this whole thing began before the foundation of the world. That in the mind and the will and the purposes of God, not only did you already exist, but he already saw you in your union with Christ. We know, we have spent great effort trying to make clear that this whole thing was ordained. It was predestined from before the foundation of the world. But there was an appointed time. There was a moment when the redemption that had been planned by God, purchased by the Son, must be applied to us by the Spirit. And very much like our natural birth, you had no clue all the planning and preparation and work that went into it beforehand. There just came a day and there you were, aware, awake, alive to the things of God, filled with new desires and new affections. The Bible calls this moment the new birth, or being born again, or regeneration. Again, just like in the first birth, just like in the day when you are physically born, the second birth, it has absolutely nothing to do with anything that you have done. No efforts, no plans, no purposes, no will. You are completely passive in this new birth. No one asked your permission. 
No one asked you to take these first steps so that you can then be born again. One second, you were not born. The next second, you were. This is what the Apostle Peter speaks about in the verse that Haley reads for us every single week before we begin worship. 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He sounds just like Paul, doesn't he? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God caused us to be born again through your union in, with your union in Christ Jesus by the very same powerful working which, with which he raised Christ from the dead. He has caused you to be born again. This isn't a physical born again. It's spiritual. This is a spiritual birth. It's a work that is handled by. It is carried out by. It is found in the power of the working of the Holy Spirit, working without any help from you whatsoever. The working of the Holy Spirit, he takes the living and abiding word of God, he applies that to your life, shows you your sin, shows you Christ Jesus, and he brings you to spiritual life. One second, dead in our sins and trespasses. The next second, alive and aware and living and walking and loving with God. Now, this isn't just the teaching of Christ through the apostle Peter or Paul. This is the word of Christ through his earthly ministry as well. You remember that Jesus was speaking to a Pharisee called Nicodemus. In John 3, 3, the Lord says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You must be regenerated. You must be born again in order to even see the kingdom of God. In verse 6, he goes on to say, That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Do you see this? We know that flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying, if you have only been born of the flesh, then you will only ever be flesh. That's all you will ever be. You will only be a man of the flesh. And so if you're going to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again of the Spirit. But the problem is, you have no control of the Spirit of God. You can't command it. You can't demand it. You can't direct it. You can't control it. He's like the wind. He comes, and he goes, and he does as he pleases. Now, you can see, and you can celebrate his work. We can come to an awareness of his activity, but at no moment may we demand him to do exactly what we've called him to do. Now, surely the Apostle Paul had this in mind as he began his gospel, because he writes there this, that we are born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. This is the working of God by the Spirit of God, taking the Word of God, calling the children of God to life. So Jesus gives us a brief description of this new birth right there in verse 5 of John chapter 3. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So you must be born of water and of Spirit. I believe that this is a reference to the promise of the new covenant through the prophet Ezekiel. We read about this in Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now I want you to picture the religious leaders of Jesus' day, or perhaps Picture yourself before you came to Christ or picture others that you have known. Many people who have tried to please God in the flesh. They have strived by their own power to walk in the holiness that they know without which no one will ever see the Lord. And they feel that they're very much alive, many of these people. They look alive. They're, they're extremely active. They don't appear to be dead men before our eyes. They're doing a lot of religious things. 
So they believe themselves to be free and holy and alive, but in reality, they're dead. They're not spiritually wounded. They're not spiritually in a coma. They're not spiritually incapacitated for a moment. They're spiritually, utterly dead, completely powerless to do anything that pleases God. They show their deadness by the fact that when Jesus Christ is standing before them, they reject him. What we read in 1 John 5, 1 is that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. You will not believe that Jesus is the Christ unless you have been born of God. If you have been born of God, you will believe that Jesus is the Christ. So these men, they, they revealed their spiritual deadness by the fact that as Jesus Christ stood before them, they rejected him, called him a blasphemer. Many of us do the same thing. All the religious activity, all the church membership, all the service under the name of God while rejecting Jesus Christ as he reveals himself in the scriptures, not truly following him as Lord. So in the end, these men, they proved themselves. And many times we proved ourselves to be dead men, dead men who had dedicated our lives to trying to do things which require spiritual life. And you know what a miserable existence this is. It truly is. It's miserable. It's frustrating. And in the end, it's a damning life to try to please God in the flesh. And yet the reality is that many of us, we live there. We were constantly had this inward focus. We tried to direct our minds to the things of Christ, but they always seemed to land back on ourselves. We tried to desire the things of Christ, but it always get a twi got twisted up in the end. But we knew what God had commanded. And we saw other people as they pursued this with joy. We saw how others loved Christ. They genuinely loved. They found their source of identity in being a follower of Christ. And so we dedicated our best efforts to being more like them. We dedicated the best efforts of our flesh to holding our nose, swallowing hard, and trying to enjoy the things of God. But in the end, we only found sin and resentment and frustration and death. But this is the beauty of what God has promised in the new covenant. This is the beauty of what Jesus points to right here. That with the sending of his spirit, God would give his people, those people whom he has cho chosen, those people whom he sees in Christ Jesus, he would give these people a new heart. He would not only wash us of all iniquity by the blood of his son, he would not only promise to eternally purify us for entrance into his kingdom, but that he would plant within us a new heart. He would change us into something brand new, altogether new. By putting his spirit within us, he would call us to life, and he would cause us to love him. He would cause us to love the things which please him. He would cause us to walk in holiness. Now, Peter expressly says that this is a thing which is caused by God. Chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul says that it's because of the great love with which God has loved us that he has made us alive together with Christ. This is the picture, church. This is the very beginning of God's saving grace at work within us. God calling spiritually dead men to life, giving us a new heart with new desires and new affections. This is regeneration. This is what we call the new birth. Now, I hope you see the picture. I had to rush through this last week. I hope you see the picture a little more clearly than you did as you walked out of here last time. But we're not ready to land a plane yet. Because you must see that there was a purpose in this act. The purpose wasn't just that you would come to life. The purpose wasn't even just that you would see Jesus Christ as he really is. The purpose was to elicit a response. That you would immediately do something in this new birth. And the very first response, the first cry, like a newborn, chi newborn child. That first gasp of air, that first precious cry of our soul is that of repentant faith. You see, in Adam, according to our first birth, our natural birth, our physical birth, we're not only stained by sin and guilty before God, but we are completely unable to want Christ. Remember now, man will always choose in any given moment whatever he wants most. In that moment, you wanted darkness. 
you hated the light, you hated the things of God, and you loved the darkness. You were not some poor orphan praying and pleading and begging God to love you. The very direction of your life was in opposition to everything that was of him. And so as you are born in this world, by nature, you're completely morally incapable of desiring Christ. Therefore, you are completely and utterly incapable of choosing Christ. Therefore, if you are going to be saved, if you are going to come to repentant faith and be saved in Christ Jesus, then it was God who must do something. If you're going to desire Christ, if you're going to see him as anything more than a stumbling block or a scandal, then it is God who must work. He must call you by the working of his spirit, by the power of his word. He must work within you to call you, to cause you, to bring you to life that you may see, that you may desire, that you may be changed. So that new birth, the second birth, this regeneration, it not only enables saving faith, it guarantees it. John 6, 37, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. This giving of the Father, this, this new birth that the Father brings about, it opens our eyes for the first time. It brings us, as I say, to a conviction of our sin, but it causes us to finally see Christ Jesus as he is. It doesn't make Jesus more glorious. It doesn't make Jesus more worthy. It doesn't make Jesus more beautiful. It, for the first time, opens our eyes to behold him as he is, to see ourselves as he is, and to cry out for mercy to recognize that woe is me, I am undone. Unless God does something, I will be utterly destroyed. And here stands before me a gift of grace in Christ Jesus. And I want him. I want him more than I've ever wanted anything in my life. And I have no hope. I have no choice but to cry out to him in repentant faith. So you must know, dear friends, that that's exactly what he has done. As he has shined in your heart with the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, so that you may repent you may believe and you may be saved. That's the purpose. Regeneration always leads to conversion. But just like regeneration, conversion is not an end in and of itself. Do you understand? God causes you to be born again so that you will be converted. He causes you to be born again so that you will turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. We must always remember this, that John 3, 1 through 8, always comes before John three sixteen. Nobody switched it. You must understand what God has done before you understand your response. Regeneration always produces faith. But the purpose of that faith is not faith in and of itself. Do you understand? There's no intrinsic value in a thing called faith. The value in faith is that it joins us to Christ Jesus. Faith absent that, faith which does not unite you to Christ, would be utterly worthless. And so we must recognize that it is by this faith that the purpose of this faith is the empty hands that we reach out to receive from God all that he has promised to be for us in Christ. That faith is the confession that I bring nothing to the table. Faith is the confession that I would do nothing but sentence myself to eternity in hell. Faith is a receiving of who God is and what he has promised. Again, I say faith would be worthless if it did not unite us to Christ. And we know that it is in this union, it is through this faith-filled union to Christ Jesus that we are justified. That is, that his infinitely perfect righteousness is credited. It is imputed to our account. His perfect, God-honoring, law-fulfilling life is just as if we had lived it. While our sin and our guilt and the curse that we deserve was placed upon him on the cross, it's a trade. His righteousness for our guilt. His blessing for our shame. So that God looks upon us, and because of our union with his son through faith, faith, by the way, which he has wrought, 
the faith which he caused in regeneration, that because of our union to his son through faith, God sees us no longer as not guilt, not just as not guilty, not just as no longer deserving of his eternal wrath, but perfect and infinitely righteous and just and fit for eternal blessings. We know this is the only way of eternal life. This is the only way that a man can close his eyes in this life and open them in the next in the presence of God where nothing unpure or unclean or sinful or stained or unrighteous may stand. It is only when we stand clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, justified because of the faith which God has brought within us, that we may stand before God in that final day. Our only hope is to be justified through faith in Christ Jesus. Now the reality is that many men stop there. The reality is that many men, they see this process of redemption, they see this process of salvation, they see it as ending right there at justification. They're so overwhelmed with the thought that God would save them in such a way that he would redeem them, an unworthy sinner, a wretch fit for nothing but hell, a man deserving of his eternal and unending wrath, that he would save us, that he would redeem us, that he would forgive us, that he would clothe us in the perfect righteousness of his son. So many men are rightfully overwhelmed by this, and the reality is that some of you may need to stop there. Some of you do not have a right understanding of the doctrine of justification, and I know this because you're still trying to earn it. You're still trying to make yourself righteous. You're still worrying that somehow you're going to lose your righteous standing before God. So for some of you, I'd call you to stop and meditate. Spend the rest of the day meditating on this one truth. In Christ Jesus, you are as righteous today as you will ever be. You will never gain, you will never lose, you will never be robbed of one ounce of his perfect and unending righteousness. When God looks at you, that is what he sees. But wait, there's more. See, many men, they stop there. Because of that, they completely miss. They completely misunderstand or completely ignore the reality of adoption. For as magnificent as justification is, as necessary as it is, that we would be counted and declared as righteous before God, as thankful as a man should be at that fact, as willing as we should be to enter into the kingdom of God. Can you think of the glory of knowing that I'm an enemy of God? I'm a child of wrath. I'm a son of disobedience. I'm following after my father, the devil. And the God of the universe would see fit to receive me into his kingdom, even as a slave. Who wouldn't jump for joy at such a thought? But dear children, I tell you that that is not the end of God's plan for us. For God does not intend to leave us standing there in the courtroom. You see, he does not merely bang the gavel, declare us to be innocent, and then wish us well as we go on our free way. We know that because of our union with Christ Jesus, because of the same faith by which we are justified, because of the same faith and the same union, the Father comes down from the bench and he receives us into his home as sons, not slaves, as sons. That God not only forgives us of the treason against him as king of the universe, that in Christ Jesus, he has appointed you as joint heir of his kingdom. The king doesn't want to destroy you. He wants to give you his kingdom. So we see how he doesn't leave us in the courtroom. He takes us into his home. And that there in that home, everything is ours. All that belongs to Christ Jesus by right all that he has earned, all that he deserves, the Father freely gives him to you, his adopted sons. Don't you see? Forgiveness isn't the end of the line. Unending blessing in the presence of the Father is. The Father looks to you, and the same love that fills his eyes when he looks upon his eternal Son now rests upon you. 
You're not just forgiven. You're not just set free. You're not just spared his wrath. You are loved. You are loved like his precious son. You are loved like his beloved son. You are loved like his worthy son. I want you to consider the parallel verse to this morning's text. Paul's writing to the church in Rome, Romans 8, 29. We read there that those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. This was the destination. Do you see it? It's, a, it's the same context, the same, same way that Paul is speaking here in Ephesians. In Ephesians, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. You see the way those two things go together? He says in one place, we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. In the other place, he says, you've been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God chose you before you existed. God predestined and ordained you before you existed that you would be molded into the holy and blameless and perfect image of his son. You see it? See how these things move together? But that wasn't the end of the line. He didn't just want you to be holy. He didn't just want you to be wanderers as holy. He didn't just want you to be slaves as holy. He made you holy in order that for the purpose of your adoption to himself as sons. It completely changes the way we think about holiness. Do you understand? He's preparing you for his house. He's preparing you for his family. He's preparing you for entrance into the kingdom which you have inherited in Christ Jesus. So again, I tell you, God did not just want a bunch of holy slaves. The destination, the end, the reason for our being chosen and set apart and called to life and cleansed and forgiven and counted as righteous and made holy and blameless was that in Christ Jesus we would become sons, that Christ Jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers. That God had been moving all of creation towards this moment. All the things that he had been doing, they land right here with your adoption into the family of God as blessed and beloved sons. He's been working by the power of his spirit through the teaching of his word, to lead us right here, to welcome you into his family. No, no, these things are not all the same. As I said, God uses these different terms, and he shows us these different aspects of all that he has been doing in redemption. But we must be very careful at this point. You see, many men, they have gotten so diligent about trying to divide up these aspects of God's saving grace, his saving work in our lives, that he completely separates them, and that's a thing we cannot do. This thing always comes together. Is it wrong to simply say in one singular act, God has saved me? No, no, not at all. He's wanted to reveal to us the glory of what it means to say God has saved me. We must never try to separate these things so far as that they become disjointed. We must recognize that the whole thing always comes together. That just as justification clears the way for adoption, that our holiness prepares us for entrance into his family, and that no one drops out along the way. No one falls off. No one is lost between here and there. That's why in Romans he continues to say that those whom he predestined he also called, and those he called he also justified, and those he justified he also glorified. There's no room for anybody to get off the bus. There's no room for anybody to get lost between here and there. That God has said, I will do this thing, and here's how I will accomplish it. Here's how I've carried it out. Look at the vast number of things that I have done to bring you into my family. Do you see it? That God has not only snatched you from the hand of Satan, he hasn't done this and then left you as fatherless orphans. He didn't just cleanse you of your sins so that you might serve in his presence as holy slaves. He has chosen you and called you and secured you to be his as holy and blameless and beloved sons. Do you see how much higher this is? G.I. Packer said that adoption is perhaps the crowning blessing of all redemption. Perhaps the highest 
the greatest, the mo- most magnificent promise God makes to us in all of Scripture. Now, much like justification, much like that moment in which God declares us as not guilty in his courts, there is a legal aspect to adoption. There's a once and for all nature. You know this, those of you that have attended adoptions. There's a once and for all nature to adoption. But unlike justification, I ask you to see the intimacy here. Again, I say as the judge steps down from his, steps down from his bench, places his arm around you, and takes you as his son. Again, I call you to see the intimacy. If we look there at verse 5 in this morning's text, it says that he has predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. Now, if you're paying attention, whenever I read this text each week, you have probably noticed that there's a number of times when I don't say the words to himself. You've probably wondered why, or maybe you haven't. You're gracious people. Y'all really are. When I mess up, y'all just nod your head and know what I meant and keep going. And so you probably just assumed. You've probably gathered by now I'm not a particularly good public reader, and you thought, well, he just missed those words. The reality is those words aren't in my Bible. To himself is not in my Bible. Now, they were in the earliest and the best manuscripts. They, we have great confidence they were, in, they were in Paul's original letter, and that's why they were in your Bible. What happened, though, is in 2011 or wherever, whenever the ESV guys printed my Bible, they just flat out missed it. So if you've got a later translation of the, a later um, copy of the ESV translation, then yours includes the word to himself. And I want you to see what we would lost if those words hadn't been there. Again, I want you to see the intimacy of God calling you to himself. Just think about what these words represent. The reality that all throughout redemptive history, God wasn't just saving men, he was saving them for himself. Go all the way back to the garden and think about Adam and Eve. God didn't just call them to life, he walked with them there. God didn't just call Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, he entered into covenant with them. And he didn't just save Israel from slavery in Egypt. He chose them. He redeemed them. He ransomed them. He called them into the wilderness. Then he met with them at Sinai, and he told them, this is what it looks like to be my holy people. He had already chosen them. He didn't choose them because they were holy. He chose them that they might be a holy nation. He said, I've placed my love upon you despite the fact that you are completely unlovable. I've loved you, and I've chosen you, and I've called you, and I've paid a great price to ransom you out of this slavery. Now I show you what it means to live as a holy people unto myself, and now I will go with you in the wilderness. Do you see it? That God hasn't just saved people from eternal hell, that he receives them to himself as sons. Do you understand what this means? It means that he wants you. The God of the universe wants you. Men stand in pulpits just like this, and they make all kinds of stupid promises that the Bible never makes. Promises about money and wealth and health and relationship and all the rest. Stupid, empty, shallow promises that God has never made, and they completely rob their people of the greatest promise in all the universe. He wants you. He doesn't want you as a servant. He wanted you as a son. He didn't call you to be somebody else's child. He called you to himself. And this wasn't Daddy Warbucks. And who was Daddy Warbucks' right-hand lady? What was her name? Faith or something? Faye? Grace? Okay. Grace. This wasn't Daddy Warbucks and Grace having to convince him to take this poor little orphan in off the street and we're not little orphan Annie trying to look our best and trying to be cute trying to convince him that we're not going to mess up his house too bad if he lets us stay remember the words of Spurgeon you were ugly and unclean and despicable little children and he wanted you for himself 
And he did it with joy. This is all of him. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit working in complete unison, complete unity, com- complete solidarity of purpose. They had decreed before the foundation of the world, we will do this. At great cost, we will do this. This is why Paul says that it's all according to the purpose of God's will. The Greek word for purpose there is eudikia. It means good pleasure. Many people, they'll get, whenever they first start to consider the doctrines of grace, they start, first start to consider the teaching of a Calvinist man like myself, they'll get real bound up and they'll say, so you're telling me that God's just completely capricious and arbitrary? He's just randomly picking some people and randomly passing over others in order to welcome them into his kingdom, in order to save them? The answer is no, he's got a plan. It's according to his good purpose. Nothing within you. Nothing that you have mustered, nothing that you have done, nothing worthy in and of yourself, but there is a purpose. It's his purpose. It's his good pleasure according to his will. And we spent a great deal of time talking about the will of God. I would encourage you to go back, if you weren't here with us back in the first week of April, I think it was April 3rd, we preached a sermon on the will of God. What does it mean that the Apostle Paul is an apostle by the will of God? I'll tell you that this is according to the unbreakable, the unchangeable, the eternal decree of God. This is a thing that God has willed, and therefore this is a thing which shall happen. It was his good pleasure It was his good pleasure according to his plan and his purposes and his will, and he will not fail. There's nothing you can do, there's nothing I can do, there's nothing Satan can do to thwart this plan, to cause him to pull up short. It is destined and therefore it is guaranteed to happen. Now listen to, I want you to know, the reason I talk about other preachers, this this is very off-putting to some people. They think that I'm trying to put down other preachers to elevate myself, or I'm trying to put down other preachers in order to convince you to stay. I I don't know why they think I'm talking about it. The reason is because there's so much bad teaching out there, I've got to warn you. I've got to sound the trumpet. I, I call you to check me as well. Correct? Don't believe a word I say just because I say it. You check me and you call me out. You come to my office. We have conversations if you think that I've, I've erred. But the reason for me warning you is because there's so much of it out there. I've listened to so many pastors that will talk about, listen, you've just got to take hold of God's destiny for your life. The problem is you're not believing in God's destiny for your life, and because of that, you're short-circuiting his plans. Your children, i tell you something so much greater than that. When God has predestined a thing to happen, it will happen. What we see is that God has called us out of slavery. He's called us not just out of slavery, but to himself as sons according to his good pleasure. He willed it joyfully, willingly. He did it for the praise of his glorious grace, and we will touch down on that next week, and I've never looked more forward to a sermon in all my life. I get to speak to you people about the glory of God. But the ultimate purpose was to the praise of his glorious grace, for the honor of his own name. He has placed his love upon you and done absolutely everything necessary, including the giving of his own son so that you might be freely welcomed into his family. Now do you see why the Apostle John would say in 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. But he didn't stop there. And so we are. There's something about knowing who you are. There's something about knowing who you belong to. I, I've, I've tried to go back and remember when this thing switched in my mind. And I've tried to go back and, and track when I began coming to you with such an internal compulsion to convince you who you are. But there's definitely been a shift in my preaching. I don't know if you've noticed it. But there's been a shift in my heart where I've got this overwhelming desire to make sure that you people know who you are. And you are sons of God. Again, I tell you, this is the very height of redeeming love. 
It's not the kind of thing a man would ever dream up. It would be the kind of thing that we would be forced to disbelieve if the scripture didn't say it so clearly in so many ways. That's why God has been so gracious to us. He didn't just mention it once in passing. He drove the thing home. Through the life of Jesus Christ consistently calling us to, telling us to call out to God as our Father. Texts like this that talk about our adoption. God knows this is unbelievable. That he would adopt us. That he would call us sons. That we would inherit the kingdom of God right alongside Jesus Christ. And so because of this, because he knows how unbelievable it is, because he knows how our hearts lie, because he knows how the enemy attacks and causes us to doubt, because we know the way that our, he knows the way that our own sin causes us to become timid and afraid and scared in his presence, because he desperately wants us to come to him as father. Any of you that have ever gone through the process of adoption, how have you longed for that child, that son, that daughter, to come into your arms and say, Father, I trust you. I love you. I need you. Because he desires this, God has placed his spirit within you that you might know, that you might be able to quiet your own spirit, that you might have confidence to come into the presence of your Father, trusting that he will not be harsh, he will not, he will not be demanding, he will not turn you away, he will not scold you because of your, your faulty belief, that he will welcome you into his presence. So I'm going to read to you two texts now that refer to this. The first is Romans 8.15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And then in Galatians 4.4, we have it almost in a, in a, almost sounds like a creed. Galatians 4.4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit, the spirit of his son, into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer slaves, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is me trying to land the plane, by the way, in case you wondered. You've got this objective reality you got these objective truths that God has laid out in his word, right? The spirit never comes and just talks in these completely subjective terms. That, that's so kooky when people talk like that, right? The, the spirit of God has told me this, and it doesn't match up with what the scripture has said. You can just, you can just throw that to the side because we, we've got these objective realities that have been given to us by God through his word, and that, that is the basis for your adoption. The basis is not bound up in anything that you feel, anything that you experienced, that you're standing before God as sons, it is not bound up in anything that you did. It is completely and wholly dependent upon Christ and all that he has done. That even in those times when we feel furthest away from God, even those times when we don't feel in any way like sons of God, even those times when we cannot come and joyfully pray to God as Father, still you are his. He has never cast you out. And so this is why I keep drawing your heart back to Christ. How many times have you heard me say this? Quit looking at yourself so much and look to Christ. Look to the cross. Look to heaven where you're even now seated with him. Trust the promises of God. Because that's where you find your status. That's, that's the legal document. That's the truth. Whether you feel it or not, you're a son of God. You've come through faith, in, come through repentant faith to Christ Jesus. You are a son of God. No matter what your emotions tell you, no matter what your experiences feel like, no matter what the lies of the enemy may be in your ear, you are a child of God. That is your status. It is secure. It is unchanging. But God knows that what we long for, what he desires for us, is much more than just the ability to look to a legal document. Are you with me? 
Listen, it, it's one thing for me to stand before my wife and say, look, we're married. Here's the marriage certificate. It's another thing for her to feel loved. It's another thing for her to love me. And God desires that for us, and he knows that we long for that in our spirit. We want to be able to cry out to him, Abba, Father. And so he does not leave us just with the word, as magnificent as the word is. He sends his spirit, that by his spirit, he would implant within us this affirmation, this new sense of love and trust and joy that comes in being called sons of God. So it's the spirit of God, he comes, and he confirms it for us through the working of the word. That the Spirit of God, he calls him the Spirit of Son, the Spirit of Adoption. He comes and he brings us to trust that the things that God has said in his word are true of us. R.C. Sproul says that he, that is the Holy Spirit, provides subjective assurance that God's objective word applies to us. That we read those promises and by the working of the Spirit, he tells us, that's talking about you. Those are your promises. Those things are coming true even now by the working of God. So that he bears witness to our spirit that we belong to God. He assures us that the promises are are ours. And this isn't, again, through some mysterious whisper or or groaning or mystical experience or something like this. It's as he works in us in part to mold us into the image of Christ Jesus, that we would bear the family resemblance. I told you there was a time, I, I said this last week, and people seem confused about this as well. I told you last week that when you were a child of the devil, you did the things that resembled your father. You walked in a way that reflected your heritage. But now in Christ Jesus, as we are as sons of God, the Spirit works within us so that we look more and more and more like him. How does it bless a father for someone to come up and say to his son, you look more and more like your daddy every day? So that one of the ways that the Spirit does this is he causes us to look more and more and more like Christ, our older brother. But in addition to this, he causes us to come to God not as slaves, but as sons, blood-bought, adopted sons. And this is where the cry comes in. That he causes within us this cry of Abba, Father. This is the cry of dependence and desperation and, aff- and, and affection and trust and love. That there's this cry within us. That, again, this isn't some mystical thing. This isn't some supernatural chant or groaning that only the super high Christians get to receive. This is the cry of every single son. Abba, Father. It's the cry of the heart. You didn't manufacture it because you can't change your heart. There was a day when you didn't trust God as Father, and then you looked up one day, and you did. You didn't cower back from him as though he was raising his hand to strike you. You came to him knowing that that same hand wanted to sweep you up into his arms. There was a day by the working of the Holy Spirit that you looked up and realized, he is my Father. No longer were these just words that you said in a corporate prayer. It was the cry of your heart. I need my Father. And one of the ways that he brings us to this is through suffering. As we go through pain, as we go through trials, as we go through suffering, we say, what is the cry of my heart in this moment? We just took took my oldest to school. Don't ask me about it. I'm sad. And you start thinking through, right, as you do this all your life with this child for 18 years. You've had this this child. And so I was thinking through, (laughs) probably shouldn't confess this. My girl spent a whole lot more time with Amanda than me, of, of course, right? And she was a stay-at-home mom. But, but oftentimes, when Annie was a little particular, when she would get hurt, there were times when she would come to me and really allow me to snuggle her, right? And so there were times when I would watch her. You know, she was stumbling along, learning to walk or whatever. And I knew she was fixing to trip over something. I knew she was fixing to fall over something. And I knew I could prevent it, but I wanted those snuggles. Now, I'm not saying I ever pushed her. But she would fall, and she would cry, and I would 
pick her up in my arms. There are times when God allows his suffering in your life. He brings you to these places just so you could hear that cry of your life. I need my daddy. I need my father. And you trust in him. You trust that he is not doing you harm and you trust that he is not destroying you and you trust that nothing you have done has disqualified you from his home. He receives you and he loves you and he blesses you. And you cry out to him, Abba, Father. It's the cry for the need of provision. Father, I need you. It's a shout of joy and worship in the middle of of a time like this. Father, I need you. It's the cry of desperation in the middle of the night. When our minds are swirling and our hearts are lying and the devil is attacking, we say, Father, I need you. Christian, I want this more than anything in all the world for you. I know how badly you need this. So I call you today. You find yourself sitting in this room and you say, I don't relate to that anyway whatsoever. I got no clue what that dude's talking about. I've always seen God as nothing but harsh and heavy and demanding. I've always seen him as some cruel taskmaster, some slave master that I had, to, I had to appease, that I had to earn my way into his house. I'm telling you today to let loose of that. I'm telling you to listen to the words that Paul has written for us here. I'm telling you to trust the promises of God. And I'm telling you to cry out that the Spirit of God would help you to know that they are true. And I'm calling you to turn and trust in him. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. Father, as I said, it would have been a truly unwarranted gift from you to be welcomed into your home as slaves. And yet, Father, for you to have not stopped there, but to have welcomed us as sons, that through the life and death and resurrection of Christ Jesus, you have adopted us into your family, given us a royal inheritance, an inheritance that will never perish, it will never waste, it will never be lost. Father, it truly is incredible. It would not be believable had you not said it. So, Father, I pray that we would live in light of that. I pray, Father, that as the whispers of the enemy and the doubts of our own heart creep in, that your spirit would burst forth, that the cry of our heart would be one of trust, one of faith, one of dependence, one of Abba, Father. And, God, as we join our voices together now and sing praises to you for all that you are and all that you have done, I pray, Father, by that same spirit, we'd be all the more assured that we are yours. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.